and welcome to the Dairy Dialogue podcast number 167. And we're already into the next money drain, which is Valentine's Day. I can't wait. I'm Jim Cornall, editor of Dairy Reporter, still suffering from a cold, and there are three interviews on the podcast this week. It was supposed to be four, but one interview that I was planning didn't happen. It was all arranged, I sent questions, and a time and a date were arranged, and I even sent out the meeting invite. And then, nothing. Still, I'm happy with the ones that I do have, and there are already a few set up for the next one as well. And then there's the ice cream show coming up. Not really looking forward to a four and a half hour drive, seeing as the most that I've done in the last couple of years is maybe an hour. But it's either four hours driving or nine on the train, with five changes, so the car wins. I'll be loaded up with CDs and snacks. The last time I went to the event, there was snow on the pass that goes through the high hills, and it's a one-lane road. And of course, there was a vehicle coming the opposite way. It was a Department of Forestry van, and it was going way too fast for the conditions and for the narrow road. And he almost forced me off the road. I think really it was only the experience of having driven a lot in the snow in North America that allowed me to slide around him. And of course, he was laying on the horn as if I had no right to be on the road. It's funny how it's always the angry one that's usually in the wrong. We had another water main break in the village this week, and the sidewalk looked a bit like a mini fountain. And if you're familiar with Las Vegas, kind of like the Bellagio fountains, only about six inches high. They did fix it pretty quickly, though. And of course, the other difference between that and the Bellagio is there were no lights and no music. The roads were wet anyway, because we've had a lot of wind and rain recently, but that's really nothing compared to the storm that blew across the Atlantic coast of the US and Canada last week. One of the members of my old band sent me a photo of his driveway with the snow up to the top of his car. I don't miss that, strangely. Here there are already lambs in the fields near home, which is nice to see from the window. Moving on to other things, I got an email this week from a listener who said that he really enjoyed how in the first year of the podcast I'd run through what special days and months there were. The crazy outlandish ones, of course. I don't really want to repeat myself, but I might try and come up with something similar for next week or something slightly different. Anyway, I'm always open to ideas. We still had some news management issues on the websites last week, which really threw the schedule off, but we did manage to get all the news out there. Just the timing was a bit different. It's been okay this week so far, which is good. And we will get to this week's news in just a moment after I tell you who's on the podcast this week. We have conversations with Rasmus Mortensen, founder of Luras, Ulrich Peinhardt, co-founder and CEO of Lube, and Christine Axelson, CEO of product digitization and traceability company Kessler. And of course, we have our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Charlie Highland at StoneX. And so that brings us to the section of the podcast where we look back over the past seven days of news we've had, just in case you missed it, and then you can go and check it out. Friesland Campina Ingredients published its report highlighting adult nutrition trends for 2022, 
Lactali has entered into the post-workout recovery category, and the NFU in the UK held talks with the government on boosting dairy exports. SIG has acquired a US packaging company, Pilgrim's Choice Cheese in the UK, which is an Ornua brand, has switched its grated cheese packaging to reduce its carbon footprint, and Arla is looking to increase the amount of energy it uses from solar power in Denmark. Here we saw the sun for about nine minutes this week. Or maybe it was just a car at the top of the hill with its headlights on. Ireland is launching the Food Vision Dairy Group, A new Danon study says popular diets may harm gut health, and in Norway, the dairy cooperative Tina is testing sending milk samples to the lab by drone. It's probably a little bit too windy for that here. It would either smash on the side of a mountain or end up in a different county. A collaboration between Friesland Campina and Danon has led to greenhouse gas emissions reductions, North Dakota introduced emergency measures to address a milk distribution workforce shortage. We had a bumper roundup of January product launches, and the IDFA, the Port of Los Angeles, and CMACGM are set to work together to boost U.S. dairy exports. You can read all of these and plenty more at DairyReporter.com. And that means it's time for our first interview, and it's about a technology designed to make dairy products safe without the need for pasteurization. It's called Rasselization, and it's been invented by Rasmus Mortensen, founder of the company Luras. And the word Rasselization comes from the first three letters of Rasmus's name, and Luce is Danish for light. Of course, English pronunciation turns that into lice, because it has a Y in it. To tell us all about it is the founder of the company, Rasmus Mortensen. Okay, so I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about the company first. Well, the company itself is five years old, actually almost to the date when I founded it five years ago, straight out of university. It was actually during the university time that I discovered how to treat opaque liquids using UV light. So based on that research, I started Lyris in 2017. And then we've been developing the technology ever since, and we started to commercialize the systems last year. Could you tell me a bit about the technology that you've developed and how it works? Yeah, sure. Basically, UV light has been around for more than 100 years, uh, even commercially. I think the first commercial system was in Marseille in France in the early 20th century. So UV light itself for disinfecting air and water and surfaces are very well known. What we haven't been able to treat is opaque liquids, liquids that you can't shine the UV light through. So what we've done is been able to develop a technique where we are able to treat opaque liquids. And this technique is based on UV light and we call it rasterization. The technique itself is where we have a spiral shaped tube, which is UV transparent. And we have a light filter sorting out wavelengths that we don't need for the treatment of the liquid. So we get a more gentle treatment. And then if you imagine a spiral tube, if you have a certain velocity of the liquid inside of that tube, you will get a turbulent flow where the particles in the middle of that tube will be pushed towards the outer surface. And it's actually in that 
space where we can hit the liquid with the UV light. So it's in the outer perimeter of the tube where we have all the treatment. And that way we can actually treat the entire volume without being able to shine the light directly through the liquid. And it catches all of the liquid as it goes through. It doesn't miss any. Yeah, absolutely. And so what products in the dairy and dairy alternative spaces would this be relevant for? Well, we, there's a bunch of research on many liquids going on right now within our company, but where we see the first applications being available is on add-on treatment for raw milk, where we can remove bacteria prior to the pasteurization. We can also use it to extend shelf life of fresh milk with just a small amount of light just before bottling the milk, and we can have an extended shelf life. But also, it's very efficient on whey, so you don't have to heat up the whey again. You can just use our rasterization and then you have a whey without any microbial activity. And then you limit the thermal history of the whey so you have a better protein quality. What would the benefits be for companies that would be using the system? Again, it depends on the application where you, where you use it. But for example, we have one running on raw milk where... You know, there's a legal requirement specific for raw milk that you have to pasteurize it. So we can't remove the pasteur yet, but we can treat the raw milk with our technology and then use the pasteurization step. And then for a cheese dairy, you wouldn't have to use your bacterification step and you, you wouldn't have to use your UHT on the, uh, from the bacterification. So we can remove the bacterfuge at this point. And I guess over the past hundred years everybody's grown aware of and used to pasteurization how will you get the word out about rasterization well that's something that we are working hard on doing every day because you are absolutely right you know it's been around since louis pasteur it's just continue putting out the word and most of all showing our customers that the technology actually performs as we promise so what we are doing is that we have a lot of test units. So, for example, a big company would like to hear more about our technology. Instead of just hearing about it, we can do in-house testing, but we can also come to them on site and have a test unit with us and run their actual product through our test unit. And then they can both see the, the log reductions of the microbial activity, but they can also see and smell and taste their own product. So they can make absolutely sure that we don't do any harm to it, but they actually get just as good or better quality of their product. I guess initially it was called cold pasteurization. Why did you change the name? Well, I call it cold pasteurization in the beginning, but I've always known that it's contradictory because per definition, pasteurization is a heat treatment. But I wanted just because it's a new technology, I wanted it to... Uh, make a reference in people's brain about what we were trying to do. So it was doing the same as pasteurization, but without temperature. But again, when something is contradictory, it doesn't sound right in my head. So we've been trying to come up with a name for this step in the technology. So we named it rationalization now because it's more a defining term of the step that we are actually doing in the process. And how effective is it compared with other methods? Well, we can eliminate uh, microfiltration and uh, pasteurization, for example, in raw milk. You always have a limitation on any technologies out there. So, for example, our technology is just the same as with heat. If we shine too much light in the milk, we have create off flavors. 
So right now we are talking about windows of treatment opportunities, for example, for raw milk, where we are able to treat the raw milk to the same extent as a HTST performance pasteurization. But I, we are not there yet where we can say that we, we can do an UHT process. But maybe someday we can get there because, you know, it's a young technology and we are still developing a lot. And would it be cost effective for dairies to utilize your equipment and easy to install? They don't have to redo their entire processing yeah, equipment? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we compare with, with HTST then, and a bactrifugation step taken out a, on a cheese dairy, for example, if we remove the bactrifugation and HTST, then we actually save 90% of the energy related to that process and more than 60% of the water consumption in a process like that because you know if you heat up something you have to have steam and you have to cool it down with ice water and you have to have regenerative water not to lose too much energy with our step we have an inlet pipe and an outlet pipe and then we need a electric socket so that's actually what we need to integrate our system in a existing line so what you were talking about there then it would be something that would be useful for companies to meet sustainability goals as well Absolutely. That's actually why I've, I started the company. I was doing the research at the university and then I did an energy calculation and I could see that we could save a lot of energy using light instead of heat. And I didn't want that to just be left in a drawer or at a university. So I wanted to get it out in the world. And that's what we are doing now. And how about approval processes in terms of obviously there's different regulations in different countries? Yeah, well, we have uh, the long-standing regulation regarding raw milk that has to be heat-treated. The way we are tackling that right now is that we have a government-funded project called UV Safe Milk. It's within something called GUDP, and we are working with the, the Danish Technical University and a local dairy in Denmark, where we are gathering enough data so we can prove that is equal to or better than an HTST process. And once we have that, we can change the legislative starting in Denmark, and then we want to spread it out from there. So it's just in the one place that it's being utilized right now? Yeah, we are working also looking at US, but that is a huge process. And, and we are predicting that it's going to take the better part of a decade going through that process. And so um, what are the short and long-term plans for the technology? You mentioned 10 years for the US, so obviously it's not something that we'll be seeing instantly. Well, that's for raw milk. So, for example, we already have a system treating blood plasma in the US. So there are a lot of application possibilities for this technology. It's not just within dairy that we can make a, a difference regarding both performance and energy optimization. It's across a lot of liquid industries where we are actually able to treat liquids today, where there are no legislative demands. And in the dairy industry, how, how soon do you think that we could start seeing this being utilized? Already now. We are commissioning an ESL unit at the moment, and we have for salt brine, and we have for raw milk, and we have for whey already producing. And so hopefully that will be something that you can spread out to other countries as soon as you can. Yeah, absolutely. And how do companies that are interested in your technology get in touch? Usually on our website, shooting us an email, then we have a very good sales team that will manage any contact that we get. All right. And what's the web address? It's uh, lyris.com. 
Now it's to Germany for an interview with Ulrich Peinhardt, co-founder and CEO of Lube, which is a digital trading platform for waste and recycling raw materials. And the company is expanding its coverage beyond Germany. All right, could you first tell me a little bit about Lube? Lube AG is a software startup offering specialized cloud solutions in waste management for private and public companies. We want to connect them digitally. Companies that generate waste, companies that are sourcing raw materials, as well as recycling and recovery companies to create a more transparent market and to promote sustainability. We create a very efficient marketplace in which buyers and sellers can trade and exchange their so-called waste as valuable goods. One of our core offerings is our online platform Lube Trade. On Lube Trade, companies tender their waste materials via e-auction in an easy and structured way. And why was the platform developed? We realized two things. First, there is a great potential in waste management for digitalization. The market isn't very transparent and processes in the recycling industry mostly work in the analog way. Secondly, companies are annoyed by wasting their time in waste management. We made it as easy as possible to sell or buy reusable goods. Lube Trade is a digital marketplace for almost every kind of waste material. This digital trading platform increases the benefits for these companies and it makes their trading more efficient. In addition, it improves transparency and helps taking care of the environment. And who benefits from using it? All participants benefit from Lube. As a waste producer, you find the right trading partner, save time and money in marketing your waste. As a purchaser, you have simple access to raw materials and recyclables. The e-auction of our dynamic procurement system Lube Trade leads to economically better sales and revenues. That's great. Does it apply to dairy companies, dairy alternative companies as well? Yes. Lube is applicable for all companies who generate waste in every form. This includes dairy companies as well. The structured process of creating a tender on Lube Trade makes it very easy for any company to market it based. And I guess the tender process has four steps. Could you go through what those four steps are? First of all, you determine the time schedule in which you want your waste to be marketed. The next step is defining exactly the content of the tender. Which waste materials are you dealing with? What's the shape and size of your waste? For instance, is it a liquid, pellets, is it in batches, containers and so forth? What are your collection and delivery conditions? And what's your asked price and payment conditions? As a third step, you define compliance criteria, for instance, environmental requirements and insurances. As a fourth and final step, the platform automatically generates the necessary documents and publishes the tender. How easy is it for companies to use the platform? The cloud-based software solution is intuitive to use. In addition, our personal support is happy to assist users in marketing their waste as needed. And what's the reaction been like to it in Germany? How's it been received there? 
Since we started the platform in Germany 2018, we have seen double-digit growth rates in user numbers every year. This trend increased since raw material prices are rising. The purchase of secondary raw materials and the efficient marketing of waste are becoming mandatory important for the industry and the commerce. Lubei trade partners appreciate the easy handling and profit from the best price range. At least they make a sustainable contribution by trading their recyclables via Lubei trade. This is because they can ensure, for example, that recyclables really end up in the recycling process. And so now it's being extended to the European markets. Why have you extended it to Europe? Following the success of Lube Trade in Germany, expanding to Europe was the next logical step. With the English version of Lube Trade, we can achieve a much wider reach in the marketing of recyclables. Most of our public sector tenders are already pan-European tenders and many of our industry partners are global players who want to take advantage of Lube Trade in all their operations. And so how do companies register to use the platform? Companies can easily register for free via the registration link on our website. When a company has created its profile and answered a few questions, we will verify the trading permissions and send the activation key. By entering this key, the profile will be activated and they can start to tender their waste. Now we take a trip over to Norway and the company Kessler, which is a product digitization and traceability tech company. Its traceability technology uses specialized codes on individual products to secure their validity. Of course, it does more than just this, so to tell us about the company and what it does is Kessler CEO Christine Axelson. And I first asked for some details about the company. Sure. I'll give you a sort of the background story because the story of Kessler starts with a plane crash outside of Denmark in 1989, killing 55 people. And this accident was caused by counterfeit bolts in the tail of the aircraft. And the bolts only had 60% of the intended strength. So when there was turbulence that caused vibrations during the flight, the bolts broke. The tail fell off, causing the plane to crash. And it's this accident that inspired the founder of Kessler to tackle the problem of counterfeit products. And it sort of sent him on a, on a mission to fight counterfeit products across all industries in, in the world. And to solve this problem, and eventually many more, we've built a world-leading cloud-based solution for product digitization and traceability. So Kessler's end-to-end -end, uh, product digitization and traceability platform allows brands, so branded goods companies, to track and trace their products along the supply chain and create augmented product experience around it. So as an example, with the, with the Kessler solution, a consumer and consumer can easily scan or tap a product to uh, verify authenticity or see the full uh, product journey from ingredients to the final product in hand. And they can also be you know, rewarded for their activities or, or initiatives. And the brand, the branded good companies, in addition to meeting these consumer demands for 
insights and traceability. They also get unprecedented insights across their own supply chains through sourcing, production, distribution, consumption and, and recycling. And at the same time, they're able to comply with regulatory demands or from governments, if any. It's good that something good comes out of yeah, some no, of those no, tragedies. Yeah, and I think the fight against the counterfeit, it's still, you know, core to some of, of uh, the problems we saw, right? There is one million people who die from uh, counterfeit medicines every year. And I think what the US CDC uh, is estimating that one in six Americans get sick yearly by foodborne illnesses. 3,000 Americans die from foodborne illnesses. Yeah, and, and it's not just you mentioned the counterfeit um, pharmaceuticals, but there's a lot of counterfeit food out there. And so it's um, it's a big issue everywhere, I think. Yeah, and I think the most dramatic story here is that 2008 infant formula scandal in China, which ended up having 300,000 victims, babies, who got poisoned from infant formula. And that is uh, not necessarily just a counterfeit story. It's about how the Chinese government's uh, was requiring increased production. But there is so many stories. And I guess when you work like, like we do in, in this space, there is uh, horrifying stories about pharmaceutical products, foods products being counterfeits more frequently than you would think as a, as a consumer. We tend to hear about some of them in some other countries, but I don't think that big Western countries are, are immune to it either, unfortunately. No, I, I agree. I just wonder if what kind of technology you have that's relevant to and useful for companies in the dairy and dairy alternative space. Yeah, no, I'll use one example, and that is dairy cooperative uh, Friesland Campina, and we provide global traceability services to Friesland Campina. The backdrop is again this infant formula scandal in in China that we touched upon earlier, and Friesland Campina had a survey done by research body Nielsen that showed that more than sixty percent of the consumers in China wanted more details on food sources, production environments, how products are made. 93% even said that product information on the packaging is insufficient. And 71% said that they want more details on, on quality checks during production. The solutions that we helped Friesland Campina put in place for infant formula in China allows end consumers to trace the infant formula they purchase all the way back to the farm by scanning a, a simple sort of QR code on the bottom of the tin. And then Friesland Campina, the dairy company, on the other hand, they get full product level visibility into their supply chain. They get the insights into uh, consumer and consumption patterns while also complying with a legislation in China because China put in, put in place uh, a lot of legislation to sort of combat the challenges that they'd experienced in the past. And in the case of Island Campina, who have their brand promise, grass to glass, they saw this opportunity to uh, re-establish trust initially in the, the Chinese market after that scandal by giving uh, their consumers this ability to interact with the product, to ensure that what they're feeding their uh, baby is authentic, providing the entire story of, of the product. Um, so, like I said, the consumers can then see which farms the milk came from, you know, how it was manufactured, how it's quality checked, and, and so on. And I think we've even seen studies, and this is sort of globally, 75, I think it is, percent of consumers are, are willing to switch to brands that provide more in-depth 
information about the product. And this is obviously an example with, with infant formula and, and dairy, but you can probably imagine this can be expanded to, to many other dairy products. The other question that kind of comes along from that one is how does your technology work in, in terms of how you work with companies and how easy it is for them to access that kind of thing? Yeah, and this is obviously where it gets a little bit technical, right? Because what we do is we associate unique identities. So think of it as a, a digital fingerprint with every single item, every individual product at the point of manufacturing. And this point of manufacturing is a, is a really sort of interesting spot because that's where the upstream, the ingredients meet the downstream, the actual uh, product. And we put unique identities in this case in the form of a QR code, but it could really be any other carrier of, of a unique digital identity as a combination, random combination of letters and numbers. So we put that on the individual product and then we associate data through integrations with, with factory systems, with the, the product. That could be, you know, where the ingredients in that particular batch is coming from. It could be, you know, other uh, manufacturing data, could be expiry dates, all sorts of batch-related data. And then we also digitize, you know, the carton, pallet and container, and then continuously associate data through these unique identities through the supply chain. So let's use an example. If a container is put on a boat in Rotterdam uh, direction, you know, China, Thailand, the US for that matter, we also keep track of all the children, so to say, of that container, the pallets, the boxes and the individual um, cans. And then everything that happens to the container also happens to this. So we, and then we, we basically keep associating and harvesting data through the supply chain. And we can also share that data back at any point in the supply chain, depending on sort of what information is required and to what kind of recipient. In the end, if a consumer scan is part of the scope, then the consumer can get information about the journey and also the brand can get information about the exact journey of the product in hand. And you know what you could achieve is also things like detecting abnormal behavior. So if products end up in markets where they're not supposed to be, if you have one consumer scan, someone might have bought the product you know, across the border. If you have 10,000, you have a leak in your supply chain. And that might be serious, not only because you price differentiate between markets, but also because there are different regulations, government regulations on ingredients or packaging requirements. How is it possible to satisfy the needs of both producers and consumers? Oh, that's a very good question. And I think that's one of the key challenges about transparency, right? How much is the brand able and ready to share? And what are they legally required to share with whom? So uh, that's sort of, a, I would say, almost a philosophical question. But by digitizing products, what we do is we enable our customers, so branded goods companies, dairy companies, to harvest, monitor, measure data about the product throughout the supply chain. And, and this allows them to improve. It gives them visibility. They are able to do more targeted recalls. They are able to improve in efficiencies in their supply chain. But this data from you know, sourcing via manufacturing through the supply chain all the way to consumers can also be used to educate consumers. So you can use the same sort of or parts of the same data sets to allow consumers to make educated choices. And, and I have all these, like I said, the studies. There was one from Deloitte from 2021 saying that one in three consumers claimed to have stopped purchasing certain brands or products because they had 
ethical or sustainability related concerns with products. And youngsters, I think 73% say they're willing to pay more for sustainable goods. And if you're doing improvements in your supply chain on on your sourcing or uh, even reducing your carbon footprints, you can use this opportunity to showcase and demonstrate your efforts through the product in the hands of the consumers. Actually, I think this is a massive opportunity for these best in class brands and companies, collecting insights and data and then uh, at the same time being transparent with the consumers. So there is a possibility for a, a win-win here. But I think the key challenge is, is how transparent are they able and, and willing to be. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's one of the things that consumers are really looking to now is the transparency of companies. And speaking of what consumers are looking for, I think another thing that seems to have emerged over the last few years is sustainability. And at the beginning, you also mentioned safety. So how do your solutions address those things, the sustainability, traceability and safety? Yeah, that's a good question. And I've sort of touched upon some of it. But and I think you're right, consumers are increasingly turning to sort of more sustainable goods. And by digitizing products at the point of manufacture, you know, where upstream meets downstream, like I touched upon, enable customers to collect uh, really interesting data. And and that data from creation through manufacturing all the way through to uh, the supply chain can be used to, for instance, calculate carbon footprint of the manufactured products. Because we, by monitoring, you would know where your product has traveled, really enabling brands to collect that data to start calculating the footprint or the environmental footprint of the product. And I think product tracking and tracing also generates data that can help customers reduce waste in um, supply chains. I did touch upon targeted recalls. What we see from both our customers and also, you know, other retail and is that uh, untargeted recalls is a massive source of waste. So instead of doing a blind recall of an entire batch, why not just recall the products that have been jeopardized, whether it's a pallet or a container, and then uh, educating end consumers that the product has been recalled directly through uh, the product. There's also a sort of digitized products can help inform and educate and even incentivize consumers about recycling. And then this is also about providing more information on, on the package than there is room for. Uh, if you can also imagine, and then we talked about the, the dairy industry, and if you monitor whether a milk product has kept its cold chain, it is very likely, from what I learned from the industry experts, or uh, that it will keep longer than the printed expiry date. So imagine if you could replace a printed expiry date with a QR code, and based on the data collected about that, the movement of, that, of uh, you know that carton of milk or that pallet or container, you could instead predict when the um, product would expire if it's kept its cold chain, and then even work with retail to allow for price reduction, the fewer days is, is left. So, uh, which I think would cause a massive reduction in, in waste in retail. So there's plenty of sort of use cases. I mean, digital and traceable products can also fuel uh, recycling and reuse of packaging and containers. Imagine if a container, say, or plastic bottle is, is individually digitized and then collecting data every time it's back at the filling line. And that data can be shared back. You would know how many times your packaging has been used and, and uh, recycled. And we also touched upon, you know, counterfeit production that has many dimensions, including horrible working conditions. But I think in the end, we talked about food safety and product safety. It's about really about securing the supply chain all the way to the end consumer. And if you can 
sort of fast forward, what if from the consumer angle again, right? You can scan a QR code, you can see this UI that it displays the energy used in making the product, you know, the sourcing from ingredients, the sustainability initiatives along manufacturing and supply chain. And then ideally also the individual environmental footprint. Then uh, what if you could sort of make educated choices and there pay less for something with a lower environmental footprint than more for something with a higher uh, environmental footprint. So that's kind of the future we are aspiring to. There's a lot of stuff going on and you mentioned the end consumer. I guess one of the biggest limitations would be on how to communicate a lot of this to the end consumer. Is a lot of that done through QR codes or... Right now, with the, like I said, our technology could really work with any kind of carrier. But at this point, it's a lot of QR codes. And I think to some extent, the pandemic has sort of you know, may explode the, the use of QR code during the pandemic because people have gotten used to interacting with QR codes. And I think just it allows for it opens up, you know, a whole new universe and allowing for a lot more information than what was previously available on just, you know, whatever's printed on the pack. For consumers as well as for producers, there's no one-size-fits-all approach. How do you work with companies to ensure that individual requirements are met? Yeah, no, that's a good question. And and we work across industries and market verticals. So we work in agri, we work in, you know, we, we talked about dairy, we work with fast-moving consumer goods, we work with over-the-counter pharma products, industrial products, and our sort of core technology platform is configurable to any industry, any product data requirements and any project size, because we know that there are different things that matter in different industries, right? And that's why we sort of have this integration or standards-based integration approach, supporting, you know, an ecosystem of uh, applications, enabling both current and, and future use cases. And, and we also fill our gaps with working with an ecosystem of so partners. And I think that's key here because what we excel at is data management, generating these digital identities, gathering data through various interactions through the supply chain, indirectly with integrations with ERP systems or CRM systems, but also directly with mobile phone scans. And then we keep track of this data. But to enable this, we work with partners with domain knowledge. And that could be, you know, typically factory systems like Rockwell Automation that have sort of specific domain knowledge in specific industry verticals. We also work with consultants like um, our partner Accenture. They also have specific domain knowledge and then they will typically also allow for building customized or proprietary solutions on top of our track and trace technology. Uh, we also work with ha- hardware partners, so you know sensors or chips, if, if the likes of that uh, are required. So basically, um, partnering up with the domain knowledge is the short answer. This is something that isn't a static industry. It's not just a case of everything's the way that it is, and that's the way it's always going to stay. It's constantly changing. How do you stay ahead of all of those changes in the future? I think we we work with, we try to influence, align with all kinds of ongoing initiatives and thought leaders. But most importantly, we work very closely with our customers. That's how we've developed our, our platform from the very get-go when we you know we t- started talking about this problem of, of counterfeit bolts and this aircraft uh, tailfin. So we've developed the platform and the modules and the functionalities together with the changing use cases of our customers. 
We also get insights and understanding from our partners, both our hardware partners, software partners and consultancies, and also organizations like, you know, the GS1, the Consumer Goods Forum, Global Food Safety Initiative, Global Battery Alliance, and not to forget government bodies like, in particular, the US FDA, who's focusing on, you know, leveraging technology to reduce food boninesses um, through a more sort of traceable food system, I guess, is what, how they, they put it. We obviously work with and strongly support the efforts of the uh, FDA in uniting uh, the industry to tackle challenges faced by the food industry. And, and I, well, we genuinely believe that tech-enabled traceability will help support the food safety and also, you know, will open up new channels to communicate directly with consumers who are becoming increasingly sophisticated and demanding. So we, we really work with the entire ecosystem to try to sort of prepare for the future. Now it's time for the weekly update on the dairy markets. And I know there was a GDT yesterday because I saw the results. And to tell us what's happening as we head into February is Charlie Highland at StoneX. Hi, Charlie. Hi, Jim. Um, just an update from the dairy markets this week. Feels very much a continuation of the themes that we've uh, been seeing over the last few weeks. Um, still, from a milk collections perspective, we're still behind where we need to be. I think uh, across Europe uh, and Oceania in particular, milk collections are looking still pretty weak. There's some signs of positivity out there. For example, the Irish milk collections are, are looking quite strong, but really nothing strong enough to compensate for the losses that were are happening elsewhere and as a result i guess prices continue to be uh, quite high we had a global dairy trade auction just this week um where prices on average moved up 4.1 percent quite high and that was coming off an increase of uh, 4.6% on the uh, latest uh, auction before that um the 18th of january so still uh, big moves uh, overall uh, over the last month or so um if you look across the products pretty much every product in that gdt was higher um whole milk powder was up 5.8% but that had been lagging the, the other milk uh, streams so no surprise that that was quite strong butter also up quite strong up 3.3% um skim milk powder was positive as well up 2.1% but actually, the market took that as quite bearish. And after the GDT, the markets, uh, primarily in the US and, and the CME, moved down quite considerably um, because, the, in general, the expectations were for the skim milk powder prices to move up even higher. But um, in general, I mean, if we look at prices then in Europe, uh, we are continuing to be strong. I mean, the quotations this morning um, were released, the weekly quotations for physical prices uh, in uh, across Europe were stable on butter, um, increased uh, on skim milk powder up 1.5%, 3,600 euros, and also higher on whole milk powder and, and whey. So, you know, trying to find a bearish argument at the moment is uh, is a bit difficult. Uh, milk is just not there uh, to compensate for the demand that's out there. And the demand is holding up pretty well. There is some Concern that demand may uh, be hit in the coming months due to these price inflation and other inflationary factors. But at the moment, it hasn't, uh, we cannot see that in the statistics. All we can see is that the 
collection side of the, of the equation is is weaker than than we need it to be. So for the moment, uh, prices remain high. Uh, no real change in that. There is still some discounts if we look forward out the curve and in most markets for dairy. But some of those discounts as well have been reducing a little bit, particularly in Europe. So in general, keep watching, um, looking to see where this extra milk is going to come from. But so far, it's hard to find. Great. Thanks a lot, Charlie. StoneX provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that's it for another podcast. The next one is looking very cheese-oriented next week, if all of the interviews happen. I'm a bit paranoid now after the experience earlier this week with setting one up and then everything going quiet. You can't really get too upset about it, though, because you have no idea whether there's been no communication because of an emergency like a storm or COVID issues or whatever it is. There are still lots of COVID cases locally, when for the first year or more there seem to be hardly any. I'm just looking forward to seeing some new places again. And it's funny how I'm heading to Harrogate, which is in Yorkshire, where I'm originally from. And yet, I've been to Paris and Cologne many more times than I've been to Harrogate. In fact, I've probably been to Auckland more times than I've been to Harrogate. The first time I went there was when I was at university, and I was encouraged by my girlfriend at the time to take her to a concert there. I won't say who it was, but I really didn't enjoy it. We take it in turns choosing a show, which could be anything like an art show or a concert, and of course all of my choices were all amazing. Well, to me they were. Funny how that works, isn't it? My wife and I, however, do have lots of musical overlap, although there are definitely areas that don't overlap. So on that note, I will go and pick out a CD to listen to next. So I hope you enjoyed the podcast this time, and that wherever in the world you may be, you stay safe, take care, and, as always... Thanks for listening.